Good morning. My name is Calvin Davis. Today's reading is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judea, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar at the time of the army of the king of Babylon, was besieging Jerusalem. And the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Zedekiah had said, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, I'm going to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. King Zedekiah of Judah will not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with face to face and see him eye to eye, and shall take Zedekiah to the Babylon, and there he shall return until I attend to him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hamamiel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my fields at an Anathoth, for the right of redemption by the purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamiel came to me in the court of the guards, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my fields that are in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamiel and weighed out the money to him. Seventeen shackles of silver, I signed the deeds, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deeds of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed to purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Mahasheah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamiel in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, in their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of the hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Kelvin said to me, thanks for the reading with all those. Uh, Hanamiel, Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar. You did a great job, Kelvin. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I knew you could do it, that's why. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may this human word carry your living word. And may it bring us peace, joy, and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today's scripture has this very Lord of the Rings type feel to it. Jerusalem, the heavenly city, capital of the kingdom of Judah, 
is surrounded on all sides. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonian Empire, has invaded and is laying siege to the city. Judah's armies have been routed, food and water supplies have been cut off, and the countryside's been set on fire. Vast armies of the world's greatest superpower, known for their brutality, lie in wait either for its inhabitants to surrender or for a hole to open in the city walls. They're surrounded and there's no way out. And the term hopeless is a bit of an understatement. It's a bit of an understatement. Cut to the throne room. Seated at the throne is Zedekiah, king of Judah, whose kingdom is about to be crushed. And before him is Jeremiah, prophet of the Lord. Now, prophets aren't fortune tellers, but they're people given divine perspective. They see as God sees and deliver the message to anyone who will listen. And the thing is that the message that Jeremiah has been given is kind of uh, unpopular. It's unpopular. As the Babylonian army shakes the ground with its soldiers and chariots, Jeremiah is insisting that this invasion is a judgment on the kingdom of Judah. They brought it upon themselves with their unfaithfulness and dabbling in international intrigue. Everyone who fights will be destroyed, Jeremiah says. Well, everyone who gives in to the Babylonians will be spared. Thus saith the Lord. And this message has landed him in a traitor, which you can kind of understand why. He's saying, time to surrender. Despite ridicule, though, despite torture and imprisonment, Jeremiah refuses to change his tune. And so, so King Zedekiah summoned Jeremiah to figure out why he's being so negative. Why, asked the king, why do you keep on insisting that I'm going to be captured and brought before the king of Babylon and taken into exile? Why do you keep saying that no matter how hard we fight against the colonizers, we won't succeed? Don't you want us to win the war? Don't you want us to survive? I mean, we're God's people, so surely God will get us out of this mess. And yet Jeremiah keeps insisting that, no, in fact, God won't get them out of this mess, that no matter what they do, the kingdom is toast and the end is nigh, so lay down your arms. What they need now is a cheerleader, but the king can't figure why Jeremiah insists on being such a, you know, a Debbie Downer, you could say. Despite this flavor of negativity, though, Jeremiah insists that he's not being negative at all. Why do I keep up with this thing, Jeremiah responds? Well, something strange, really strange happened to me. The word of the Lord came to me and told me my cousin Hanamel was going to send me a field in my hometown of Anathoth. And you know what? I thought it was crazy. I mean, first of all, everyone there wanted me dead as a traitor. Second of all, it's been smashed by the Babylonians. Third of all, I am in prison, in case you can't see. What am I going to do with this land anyway? Not only is the real estate market in the tank, you think the Babylonians are going to honor my deed if I ever get out of here? I'd be crazy to buy it, no matter the low, low price. 
You know, I'd be nuts to buy this thing, so I figured that maybe it wasn't the Lord speaking. Maybe I ate something funny before bed. But you know what? Wouldn't you know, during visiting hours, my cousin Hanamel, in fact, came to me. And guess what? He offered me to sell that land exactly like the word of the Lord said. It was crazy enough that I figured it just had to be God. So against all of my better instincts, against all common sense, I bought the land. I had my cousin transfer the money. I had the notary process the paperwork, had all the witnesses come to my jail cell, sign on the dotted line, and I had my assistant Baruch take it away, seal it up in the bank deposit box, keep it nice and safe for future use. I did it as kind of an act of trust, you could say. So Jeremiah is in prison, Jerusalem's about to fall, and God says, buy some land. But who's going to work it? Who can buy it? Who's going to even honor the deed? It makes no sense at all. It all sounds crazy. It all sounds crazy, that is, until Jeremiah explains to Baruch as to why. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he says, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now at this point, the purpose of the whole crazy investment scheme becomes clear. This isn't just a questionable real estate deal. It's not a ripoff. It's a symbolic act, a symbolic act of trust. God has promised to bring the people back from exile. God has promised to restore the land to its fertile and productive state. God has promised to do the impossible and to reverse their fortunes. The circumstances are about as dire as they get, and even though the worst is yet to come, Even though this is the end of the track for the kingdom, it's not the end for God. It's not the end for God. So with this little land deal, Jeremiah is showing that he is all in. He's investing in the future. In spite of the bleakness of the present, he's betting it all on God's promises. He's not pessimistic in, at all. In fact, in fact, he is filled with hope, not just for himself, but for his people. Cottages will be built. Wineries will flow again. And the joy of children's laughter will fill every plain and valley. Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts. It's an act by Jeremiah of faith. It's an act of faith. It's a beautiful vision and a beautiful promise, one that ended up coming true, actually. Jeremiah never got to see it, but eventually Babylon fell and the people were returned home. Houses and vineyards were indeed bought in the land yet again, just as Jeremiah had proclaimed. That worthless deed he had Baruch hide away probably, you know, probably scored quite the return down the way, right? Cha-ching, yeah. The real beauty of this thing, though, The real beauty is that it's not just a one-time promise in history to Jeremiah way back then. This promise is gospel. It's good news that applies to every age. 
even our own. I mean, of course, we probably have a tough time imagining real estate of any kind being a bad investment, right? But we sure know what it's like to feel hopelessly hemmed in by human life. There's, of course, the smaller scale, the broken marriage, a wandering child, or an untimely death. There's addiction, there's anxiety, depression, or a terminal diagnosis. Then there are the larger scale things. Rightly or wrongly, we live in a particularly anxious age. Refugees, wildfires, wars, and rumors of wars. A couple months ago, Ezra Klein, the journalist and popular podcaster for the New York Times, said that two of the most frequent questions he gets are, should I have kids, given the climate crisis they will face? And should I have kids, knowing they will contribute to the climate crisis that the world faces? So why invest in anything long-term if there is no long-term? Why have kids? Why get married? Why go to church? Why search out a lifelong vocation? Why be generous with what we have if it's not going to fix anything? Why not eat and be merry for tomorrow we may die? Why not if the Babylonians are at the gates ready for their inevitable conquest? What's the point of investing in the future when there is none? Well, I should just leave it there and say amen and <laughs> move in. I just wanted to give people a deep sense of despair <laughs> and sadness. But of course, it doesn't end there. Why invest in the future if there is none? Well, because there's always a future with God. There's always a future with God. This is one of the messages shot through the Bible from beginning to end, from Jeremiah all the way up to Jesus. Like Jeremiah's worthless-seeming real estate deal, the cross is the symbol of God's investment in humanity in spite of all our foibles and all of our failures. And the resurrection is God's promise that there's no such thing as a true dead end, as the old African-American spiritual puts it, God makes a way out of no way each and every day. Now, you may remember a terrible shooting that happened in Parkland, Florida back in 2018 where a gunman, Nicholas Cruz, opened fire. And he killed 17 people and wounded 17 others. And um, at that time, it was the most deadly high school shooting in U.S. history. You know, there was this moving video of Joe Biden's visit to grieving families. Uh, Biden was running for president at the time. And in the video, Biden's in this gymnasium and he's meeting with families who have lost loved ones and he's moving through the crowd, sort of solemnly shaking hands. And then he comes to the family of one of the victims, the parents and the wife of a wrestling coach who tried to disarm the shooter before he was killed. And you know, Biden shakes their hands and he goes, turns to leave after saying something comforting. And as he does, you see this teenager running at him. You hear somebody shouting, I'm his son. I'm his son. And this teenager with Down syndrome runs up to him. 
And he just clings to Biden, weeping over his father's death. He just grabs on hold, and Biden says, thank you for hugging me. But it's funny, because rather than jumping back or ducking out of the way, Biden sort of instinctually embraces the kid, and he plants this kiss on the top of his head. And almost without thinking, he says, we're going to be okay. I promise. We're going to be okay. I promise. It was kind of nice because it wasn't one of those campaigning type things. It was kind of, he was kind of caught in real life. Now let me be clear before I continue. This is not some glorification of Joe Biden. Honestly, the video was used in kind of an icky way during the campaign. But I don't mean to make a political point. I mean to make a theological one. That moment resonated so deeply because in the light of the gospel, what Biden said is true. In the light of the gospel, what Biden said is true, not just about this particular shooting, but on the cosmic scale. In a nation devastated by violence, in a community laid waste by bloodshed, in countless families broken, torn apart by murder, it felt like the end of the world. The Babylonians were not only at the gates of Parkland, they breached the defenses. The idea that life could flourish in that place, that anyone could even start over again and invest in any kind of future, sounds like a cruel joke. But even there, even there, in the light of the gospel, Biden's words were true. We're going to be okay, I promise. Because what God holds the future, there is always another day ahead. Houses and vineyards and fields will one day be bought again. Because God holds the future, we don't have to consign ourselves to hopelessness, no matter how fearful and dark it may appear. Because God holds we can throw down roots in our neighborhoods. We can throw ourselves into cultivating friendships, marriages, and raising families, even though we have no idea what's coming next. Because God holds a future, we can sprinkle seeds of grace all over the place. We can weep with those who weep, embrace the least, the lost, and the broken. We can love and serve our neighbors and practice generosity wholeheartedly without worrying about long-term investments because we know heaven's futures are coming back tenfold. Because God holds the future, we don't have to let our lives be shattered by suffering, by loss, or pain. We don't have to give up or give in to despair. No. No. Instead, like Jeremiah we could go all in on life, trusting that there is yet more light to shine, more love to give, and more beauty to behold. We can sing hallelujah and give God praise even on the darkest days. We can be joyful, though we have considered all the facts. Because in the words of the Apostle Paul, in all things we are more than conquerors, through Christ, who loves us. So friends, brothers and sisters, guests from far and near, friends, in the words of that great poet and farmer, Wendell Berry, 
every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Like the fox who makes tracks in the wrong direction, practice resurrection. Because Christ is risen and vineyards will be brought again, bought again in this land. Thus saith the God of hosts. It's time to go in, to go all in. It's time to invest because we're going to be okay. I promise. Amen. Please stand for our hymn of the day, How Firm a Foundation. 